Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the Johncast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. Economic sanctions have been front and center in the news as of late because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as the U.S. and countries around the world have levied sanctions on the Russian government and key Russian individuals. We wanted to learn more about sanctions. What qualifies as a sanction? How effective have sanctions been in history and how strong are the ones we are seeing now? For this conversation, we caught up with Dr. Scott Deakle. He is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Business and Economics at Ursinus College in Collegeville. So to start, I think sanctions, the idea of a sanction is something we hear in the news. We hear the term thrown around. Obviously, it has been front and center during this Russian invasion of Ukraine. What falls under the umbrella of a sanction? How is it kind of defined? So a sanction, I think of as a restriction on economic activity. and I also break it down into two types of sanctions. There's restrictions on financial transactions, and then there's restrictions on transactions involving real goods and services. So thinking about restrictions on financial transactions, when you hear things like we've restricted access to assets held in foreign bank accounts, that would be a restriction on a financial transaction. The oligarch who maybe has a bank account with JP Morgan in New York now can't do anything with all of the cash and whatever other types of assets are in that account. They're, they're just frozen. They can't go anywhere. You, you've heard about restrictions on the Russian central bank, and you hear about its reserves and its dollar and euro reserves. All of those sanctions would fall in the financial category. And those types of sanctions just make it hard to do business uh, in general. If you don't have access to cash, you know you can't buy anything. And if uh, others cannot transfer cash into your accounts, then it's hard to sell them anything too. Uh, in addition to that, though, there's also your uh, sanctions on real goods and services. So that's when uh, government says no one's allowed to actually buy a certain set of products or all products from a given country. The obvious examples coming to mind now are the ban on Russian oil in the United States. That's a, a sanction on a real good and service that says, Americans, you're not allowed to buy oil from Russia anymore. Are sanctions strictly a government tool? Are they something that a large corporation or an entity like the UN can utilize, or are they strictly for sovereign governments? That's a great question. And certainly the private sector is willing to impose its own sanctions too. And to the topic that's on everyone's mind, we've seen a fair amount of that in this crisis with Russia. There's at least 300 known large corporations in the US and Western world that have just either cut back all or most of their business dealings with Russia. So you've probably heard about Apple saying it's not going to sell its equipment in Russia anymore, and Nike saying it's not going to sell its uh, athletic apparel there anymore. They, to a large extent, were voluntarily stopping those sorts of transactions. Some of the things they stopped selling were not necessarily on a banned list at the time they stopped selling them. 
So there, there's also a component, especially in this situation with, with Russia, where a lot of private companies have looked at the situation and said, we object to this invasion. We are going to do what we can to pressure Russia ourselves. So we're going to stop selling our products in Russia too. So we've seen sanctions before, not just with Russia, you know, Iran, uh, I think Venezuela, a lot of different countries. Are they effective? Have they, for the most part, accomplished their goals, just made life difficult for the masses? Where would you kind of put them, or is it a case-by-case basis? A lot of researchers have done papers on this topic, and looking over them, the uh, track record of sanctions actually, on the whole, it's not all that great. One group of researchers actually aggregated pretty much all of the sanctions imposed by the United States over the last 60 years or so. Defining success as getting a change in the governing regime or a serious change in policy, they found uh, about a 30% success rate with sanctions. So in a lot of cases, they aren't very effective. And taking a little bit of a deeper dive into that, you're, you're probably interested in, well, why? What, what made the 30% effective and the 70% not effective? And I, I think a, a lot of this goes back to whom the sanctions are on. And usually they are directed towards a country with a government run by a dictator or, or a dictatorial committee. And the problem with sanctions with that type of government is that the sanctions tend to hurt a large swath of the population. But since these countries are dictatorships, the population doesn't have a a lot of ability to change the regime itself. Usually uh, dictators are very good at controlling speech, controlling criticism, punishing dissenters, and holding on to power. I think we see plenty of examples of that throughout Vladimir Putin's career in Russia. So for for sanctions to have an effect, they they have to be a little more than just saying, well, you know, we're we're going to hurt this country in some ways economically. The most effective sanctions seem to have been the sanctions that have been most severe, although those aren't always most effective, but generally when they are effective, they're very severe. And they also target the financial sector It's one thing to say you can't buy goods and services from a country, but to bring a halt to all of a country's transactions seems to really have an effect. The last thing is that international cooperation appears to be a key factor. The United States is a big, powerful country, but it can't act alone to really strangle most countries' economies. Most countries trade with the United States, but depending on their geographic location, they also trade a fair amount with other countries as well. So in the cases where the United States has imposed unilateral sanctions, it's tended to have less of an effect. But in cases where we've imposed sanctions with a group of other countries, it seemed to have some effect. One possibly controversial example of this is the uh, arrangement with Iran. Those in the audience may remember that the U.S. negotiated for a long time to work together with European countries and, believe it or not, China to cut off purchases of oil and, uh, to a lesser extent, natural gas from Iran. And uh, over a period of uh, several years, it had a significant impact on the Iranian economy. 
And a lot of people who watched the situation believe that brought the Iranian government to the negotiating table back in 2015 and 2016 and uh, reached an agreement to cut back its research and development of nuclear weapons. Now, a lot of folks think that that was still a bad agreement. Uh, I think we all remember Donald Trump getting out of that agreement too. But most people have looked at that situation saying, think that the sanctions were strong enough and significant enough to bring the Iranian government to the bargaining table, at least. What we've seen with these sanctions with Russia, it would appear the way at least they're posed in the Beltway media and such that these are more than just your quote-unquote run-of-the-mill sanctions? Have we kind of, not just us, has the world community, for the most part, gone further than you would see in maybe a round of sanctions? I I think a lot of folks were really surprised at, at how severe these sanctions were. They may have memories of previous Russian invasions of neighboring territories. You can think of the Crimea invasion in 2014. You can even go further back to when Russia annexed certain portions of the Republic of Georgia back in 2005 and 2006. We imposed sanctions on the Russian government then, and we even had some sanctions with some allies, but they were comparatively light. They froze some assets. They froze some assets of some powerful people in Russia, but they didn't go to the extent that this round of sanctions has gone. So what's different this time? One difference is that we have severely restricted the ability of Russian banks to do transactions internationally. A lot of you may have heard of the SWIFT system, and there was a lot of talk of cutting Russia off from the SWIFT network. There was even this period where people were saying, well, the Europeans will never agree to take Russia off of SWIFT. And then one day, the Europeans agreed to take Russia off of SWIFT. And what that meant for a lot of Russian banks is that those banks were no longer able to transfer money to banks in other countries on behalf of their customers. So you can imagine that being quite a a problem for the, the Russian economy. There's plenty of businesses there that rely on foreign suppliers for their components. And there's plenty of companies that sell items to foreigners. And this uh, makes it very difficult for cash to change hands in those transactions. So that's going to take a a while for, for workarounds to be found with that set of sanctions. Now, the, the other thing is that Our allies in Europe themselves, though, have certain sets of transactions that they are not willing or able to cut off. Those primarily have to do with energy supplies, specifically natural gas and to a certain extent oil as well. European countries rely on Russian natural gas to heat their homes, cook their food, power their electric plants. And if they were to cut off Russian natural gas immediately, it would have severe economic consequences for them. So, so that's, that's held back a little what the U.S. and its allies have been able to do with these sanctions. That would be, though, if there were to be a final tier of sanctions, would that be what would be left to target? Or are there other things that could be done to make these even more severe? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really what's left at this point is to cut Russia off uh, in terms of its energy supplies to the rest of the world. By estimates uh, that experts have put out, 
the rest of the world is currently sending close to $1 billion per day to Russia to pay for its natural gas and its oil. So you can imagine that's a lot of money that's helping support the war effort that Russia has undertaken. And if the world was able to cut that off, that would, I'm sure, have a dramatic impact on Russia's ability to conduct this war in Ukraine. Unfortunately, I think European leaders look at their situation, and I don't disagree with them, that if they actually stopped buying Russian natural gas, they would have tremendous problems in their own countries. Things like people not having heat during a cold time of year, blackouts, significant blackouts in their countries. So when you get to energy, you really push up against the limits of what the European allies can do with these sanctions. I would imagine if you get to the point where people refer to you as an oligarch, you're pretty nimble with keeping money in places where people can't find it or don't know about it. How effective are sanctions like that we have seen against these individuals? I mean, I would imagine it takes a chunk out of their fortune. You mentioned, you know, if they have it in a bank in New York, stuff like that, that's relatively easy to see. But I imagine a lot of this stuff, the paper trail makes it, or lack of a paper trail, makes it almost impossible to say definitively what belongs to who? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think uh, these oligarchs, they've, they've got enough resources that they probably had some plans in place to avoid some of these things. That said, they probably have experienced some restrictions. You know, a lot of oligarchs had places in London, maybe on the French Riviera. It's probably difficult for them to get to those places. There's, there's been sporadic news reports about yachts being under investigation at various foreign ports, whether or not they belong to oligarchs or Vladimir Putin himself. I think they're feeling a little bit of it, but I, I assume within Russia, they still can pretty much get whatever they want within the Russian economy. And they probably have some ability to move some things around externally too, through the types of methods that you describe. And it's interesting because the Russians announced a bunch of sanctions a few weeks ago against American officials like the president, you know, and members of the cabinet and such. Just symbolic. I mean, if you don't have assets in the country, does anything have any effect? Yeah, I think we can count those as as largely symbolic. Uh, I doubt many uh, members of Congress or President Biden's administration really have much at stake when it comes to Russia. Uh, I don't think any of them have dachas uh, out on the countryside or a lot of investments in those places. I think it's more symbolic and I think it illustrates the economic imbalance uh, between the United States and Russia. The United States has, has a much larger and wealthier and much more diversified economy than Russia. And so this, this gives us the ability to fight a war that we don't want to fight with troops, with economic measures. So I'm curious, this war has only been going on a month. It feels like a lot more. And a lot of these sanctions have only been in place for a week. As sanctions drag on months, maybe if we eventually get to years, what's the long-term effect? Yeah, I think that's that's a question worth looking at. Because I, I think if you honestly assess the current situation, the sanctions haven't really slowed down the Russian military. The, the Russian military has only been slowed down by fierce resistance from the Ukrainians and its own ineptitude. But maybe the economic sanctions can have some long-term effects. And I, I can see a way 
it could in a few ways. To the extent the Russian army and military was relying on Western electronics for its equipment, it, it will miss out on those. And uh, it could lose some of its fighting effectiveness that way. Uh, but at the same time, we, we often see that when countries undergo sanction regimes, they find ways to work around it. They find ways to evade the sanctions. And one way they can do it is to increase their dealings with countries that are not taking part. You know, looking back at the United Nations vote on condemning this invasion, there were several notable countries that either voted against the resolution or abstained. And uh, among those were India and China. A lot of observers see a possibility that uh, the Indian government will enter deals with the uh, Russian government to get oil and possibly natural gas from Russia at a discounted rate. And you might understand why a government might enter a deal with that, uh, because you can get a lot of uh, energy very cheap and your population who maybe could care less about an invasion a few thousand miles away would be very happy to have the cheaper energy. China is also an interesting case because uh, a lot of folks are probably having their memory a big grand statement among Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, where they uh, announced their alliance for it with each other and their willingness to support each other. And some folks even think that you know, China asked Putin to wait until after the Winter Olympics were over before invading. Uh, that, that's debated, but uh, a, a lot of people can certainly see how that might have worked. But the interesting thing to look at with China is how it has behaved since the invasion actually happened. And there are actually a number of Chinese companies that are voluntarily uh, sanctioning Russia themselves, like the Western companies we've discussed. TikTok, uh, which I think we're all familiar with, uh, is taking its service out of Russia. A number of Chinese smartphone makers, like Apple, have cut back or stopped selling their products in Russia as well. Uh, two of China's largest banks are cutting back on some of their transactions that involve things like Russia oil. The Chinese government, we all know, is aware of everything that happens in China and feels uh, the strength to put pressure on Chinese companies when it doesn't like what they're doing. So far, they, they haven't done anything to stop it. Americans would all love to see China do more in this battle, but we, we can also take a step back and say that they also have not been completely stand-up partners with the Russians in this particular situation. So I, I think over time, the effectiveness of these sanctions will, in a large part, deal on how the Chinese government handles them going forward. If they allow more liberal trade and financial transactions with Russia over a long period of time, that could really help Russia function as it continues what's really turned into a, a long slogging war of attrition. But if uh, the Chinese government uh, is okay with uh, restrictions on dealings with Russia, then that might uh, speed the process towards a resolution of this conflict that we like better. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.